started, I'm going to give uh, Jared Lovelace. He is going to be running against Michael McCall for Congressional District 10. So I'm going to give him just a, a few minutes to introduce himself. Um, to the best of his ability. 
couple of points where I differentiate myself from Congressman McCall. Okay? He, he's a conservative, I'm a conservative. We, we agree on a lot of things, right? But there's a few things where I feel like I differentiate myself, and that's where I'm going to leave it to you as the voter to decide what you would rather have in Washington, D.C. The first thing is the national debt is $33.5 trillion. When he ran in 2004, the debt was only $7 trillion, which is already too big, right? To maintain our debt every year, we have to shell out almost a trillion dollars. Okay, that's, that's about a quarter of what our tax revenues are for federal government spending. We continually had a, def a deficit since 2001. We haven't had a cash-flowing federal government since 2001, um, which means we have continually raised the budget limit. McCall has voted to raise the budget continually throughout this tenure. And quite plain and simple, if you or I were to spend more than we earned on a regular basis year after year, we would be bankrupt. In a debtor's prison, we would not be free. Okay, our country is going to cease to be a free and independent nation if we do not get our finances under control and we stymie and, and, and cure the addiction for spending money in Congress. That's going to require some sacrifice on both sides of the aisle. Okay, it's, it's financial prudence that's going to help us have longevity as a country and prosperity in the long term. We can't continue to fight through the near term.
call our meeting to order. Again, thank you for coming, and I appreciate it. And if you will, stand for the invocation, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and allowing us the freedom to gather in peace. Please help us to keep our minds open to what we will hear at this meeting. Help us to listen and <laughs> help us to listen and learn. Then give us the strength to share our conservative beliefs with others. We pray that our country will soon turn away from the evil and the corruption that has consumed Washington, D.C that faith and family will be restored as the solid foundation of this great nation, that those who want to subvert, pervert, abuse, or mutilate our children are exposed and punished. We pray that America will once again become a beacon of light for the rest of the world. Finally, please see us safely home after we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stay standing, please, for the pledges. First, the American flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And the Texas flag. Honor the Texas flag. I pledge allegiance to the Texas, one state, under God, one and indivisible. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you may be seated. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank Joe Jamison, who is sponsoring our refreshments. So, again, feel free throughout this meeting if you want to refresh your coffee, get some tea, uh, water, a little snack, feel free just to get up and do it. You won't bother us. But thank you again, Mr. Jameson. Right. Um, okay. I'm not going to do roll call because our secretary, Linda Stahl, says we have a quorum. So, yippee. Yeah. All right. So, the first uh, order of business is to approve the minutes from the September 9th meeting. It was our third quarter executive meeting that um, minutes were sent out earlier yesterday. Yes, all the executive committee should have received that. So uh, all in favor of accepting the September 9th meeting minutes say aye. Uh, aye. All right. Any opposed? Good. All right. Uh, we had a second meeting in September. It was a special meeting specifically to uh, elect a precinct chair for Molden Cistern area, and we approved, elected uh, Stephen Hawkins. Stephen here today? Oh, there he is. Duh. Okay. It's been a rough one. All right. So, Stephen, stand up and just wait for people to let them know. If you're in the Cistern Molden area, Stephen is your new precinct chair. And remember, early voting starts Monday for two weeks. So take advantage of it if you can. If not, come see me on the 7th of November. All right. Thank you. All right. Our treasurer's report from our treasurer, Kimberly Rutledge. 
I'm Kimberly Rutledge. <laughs> there was a lot of time between the last meeting and this meeting, so we only spent $38 on refreshments for the last meeting. That's it. Our balance in cash is $4,716 in our general account. Our primary account has $100. Thank you, ma'am. Okay, our next order of business, uh, the precinct chair who used to cover Schulenberg, uh, Mr. B.J. Willis, had to resign. Um, he and his wife were adopting two of their grandchildren, so I imagine they're going to be pretty busy. So he has resigned, but I am opening the nominations for precinct 425 chair, which is Schulenberg. Um, are there any... Uh, nominations from the floor. Okay. I am nominating Cindy Wingo for that position. Where's Cindy? Where'd you go? Okay. All right. Hearing no other nominations, all in favor of appointing Cindy Wingo as precinct chair for 425, say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for serving, Cindy. All right. Uh, we still have vacancies in LaGrange, one north. So if you or anybody you know would like to step up and serve as precinct chair for one north, that is open. And also, Dubina, Amsville, Swift Out, which is precinct 422 has a vacancy in precinct chair. But I'm pretty happy that we only have two vacancies out of 12 precincts, so that's great. And I appreciate every precinct chair that is serving. Um, Stephen mentioned that early voting starts this coming Monday, and since this is a constitutional only uh, election. <laughs> uh, in most places, there are a couple of places that are having uh, special elections strictly for their community. So early voting is going to start on Monday. It'll be from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. through the 27th. <coughs> and during that time, we will have the elections office, the Meadows building on Ellinger Road, that will be open for early voting. But in addition to that, the Fayetteville precinct and Schulenburg precinct that are having special city elections will also be open for early voting. So uh, then the next week, early voting October 30th, through Wednesday, November 1st, also 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then Thursday and Friday, November 2nd and 3rd, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So although there's not going to be any early voting on the weekends, those last two days of early voting, they will be open from 7 to 7. So you'll have an opportunity, again, in all three of those locations, all of those days. One last thing I want to mention about early voting and election day voting, the round top voting location 
changing to the round top American Legion Hall. We've had it at the courthouse in round top for a long time, but that has just gotten too small, and especially um, next year for the presidential election, it's just going to be too small. So we're starting with this smaller election just to see how that location works out. Uh, it's located at 1503 North State Highway 237, just, would you say north or west of Round Top? Okay. So just north of Round Top. The it's, it's a little off the road, but Terry uh, uh, told me they have these clapping big signs on the side over here, so you'll be able to see where it's coming. Okay, good. Okay. If y'all are antique fans, it's where the arbors Okay, we have a few technical difficulties. But we're going to move on.
I have some history of working with uh, legislature over six years, uh, opposing uh, legislation and promoting legislation as a, as a grassroots activist. And I can tell you that constitutional wording is often contorted to not sound like what it is. And sometimes there are Trojan horses. Uh, some of you may have known that my wife and I uh, combated the Trans-Texas Corridor and there was a constitutional amendment that sounded quite uh, innocent. And it was, in fact, the enabling piece that allowed uh, what happened or almost happened with the Trans-Texas border to take place. And you could read the uh, constitutional amendment and not see what was coming. And so I'm always a little suspicious. Also, I would give a little background because I heard some of the questions asked earlier uh, before the meeting is that uh, why do we have so many constitutional amendments? And part of that is that the Texas Constitution uh, has a lot of things in it that are not just general global uh, philosophies, but it has some real nuts and bolts, uh, all the way down to certain elected offices in each county. And the decision was made that we would continuously modify the Constitution to address those things instead of doing it in, uh, at a legislative level. That's both good and bad. That means that these things all have to be voter approved by you, which makes it harder to change some, some things. But on the other hand, there are those who argue it makes it easier because as long as the legislature can get it put on the ballot, the chances are pretty good that it passes. Most, I think the plurality, most things pass once they're put on a ballot for constitutional amendment, people go in there and they glaze over, which people will do for this election, 14 amendments, and they're not all one short sentence worth, and it's not real easy to understand. The other thing that happens, uh, it's kind of the same mentality of voting for judges where you don't have any personal involvement. There are some things that are local issue items that, that like I just said a minute ago, uh, offices in particular counties, there are items on constitutional amendments that will only affect one of Texas 254 counties. Yet the vote is across the entire state. And so to, that's almost anti-local control in that a particular county can't make its own decision of what officers should be elected or not elected, nor the legislature, but in fact the citizens of the entire state. So with that preface, I'm going to go through and try not to bore you to death with these, uh, I know that there are some on here that you have interest in and will have a direct impact to you potentially, and there are some on here that you'll have no interest in and won't impact you at all, and so I give you that saving that of the 14, some will go quickly. So we'll start with proposition number one. And, and for each of these, I'm gonna give you what the ballot language is, so that you'll know what you'll be seeing on the ballot on election day or early voting. The Constitutional Amendment protecting the right to engage in farming, ranching, timber production, horticulture, and wildlife management. Wow, that explains it entirely, doesn't it? That's the whole ballot language. Um, and I'm gonna go through these, and I have a lot of other information here, not all of which uh, is of value to you, some you might think would be, and I'd be happy to share it with you. For example, uh, this one, the, uh, the author and the sponsor of this legislation put this on the ballot are both Republicans. And in some cases, they're both Democrats. And in some cases, it's a Republican and a Democrat. And sadly, if you go through all 14, 
you'll discover that having two Republicans doesn't make it necessarily a good amendment. I will say, however, I think having two Democrats made them all bad. But, but I'm a little biased. And there are some that are, are split. Um, we'd all like to believe that politics has nothing to do with this, right? Yeah. So, a constitutional amendment protecting the right to engage in farming, ranching, timber production, horticulture, and wildlife management. And today we have our subject matter expert here to, to get into the details if we'd like to. But I will, uh, at the onset of each of these, uh, his organization, which is Texas for Fiscal Responsibility, has taken a position, including neutral, on all 14 of these. And I'll share with you that our subject matter experts organization has taken a position in favor of this First Amendment. And so the background here is the farmland and ranch land in this state is being impacted by the growth of urban areas and increasing municipal regulation. The proposed amendment provides constitutional protection to farmers and ranchers engaged in normal practice of agricultural operations on property they own or lease. And there may be some of you in this room that have felt the pressure of that regulation and the impact and it, uh, it seems like every large city wants to turn every large tract of land into urban sprawl as a benefit to the city uh, across the state. And so, we have anyone who has a question on this particular amendment? And we'll start with, with number one here. Yes, sir. Um, how does this, I'm wondering, I may ask this on most of how does this not raise my taxes? Okay. Or that this raises taxes? All right. I don't know. Yes, sir. So uh, we don't believe this will raise taxes. This is this is simply enshrining the right to engage in these agricultural practices into the Constitution. Right? So one of the things we're seeing going on right now is there are farmers and ranchers who are slowly getting surrounded by these, these cities. They're not selling them. This is just one of the things, one of the reasons why they put this on, on the ballot. They want to continue to engage in what they're doing, raising the cattle, whatever it is. Well, the folks in the city think it's a nuisance. Maybe it's too loud, maybe they don't like the cows moving. Um, this, is, this is meant to enshrine private property rights in a particular way into the Constitution. This is going to have no effect on your taxes. We think it's a really good amendment. It's not going to stop the legislature or the state from regulating agricultural activities. They already do that. They've been doing it since the beginning of the state. Um, uh, but it will put it explicitly into the Constitution that these, these types of practices, farming, ranching, timber production, uh, are protected. And it will give farmers and ranchers a leg to stand on, especially if they have to go to court. So that's, that's the important thing. Hey Arnold, and while I'm walking back here, I'll give you a little insight. I've, I've got over 30 years of uh, city manager experience, and I kind of liken what's happening with this in, in the rural setting is those people who build a house next to the airport, and uh, the, the planes get bigger and they get louder, and now they don't want the airport there. And there are people who build homes next to ranching operations or dairy operations or any number of agricultural operations. They're just only like the dust of, of working the field. And so they want to put pressure on that. And, and so this is the kind of thing that municipalities tend to try to regulate and have an impact on. And this gives a little safeguard there. Arnold. 
I'll make a comment as to why these are constitutional amendments. Uh, these matters, in many cases, of these particular ones, have already been legislated and things passed in the legislature. Uh, having a constitutional amendment makes it the future legislatures can't undo that simply in the legislature. I want to point that out. Thank you. Uh, any other comments on? He, he said he had heard that it would uh, potentially raise the taxes. I don't know that he pointed at anything in particular he knew about raising taxes. And I would, I would also say that, again, from a municipal perspective, I could see an argument being made, not necessarily on this constitutional amendment, but I have seen where municipalities would like to do away with ag exemptions for, for land that's within their jurisdiction because they get a lower tax rate uh, from that. And so the extent that you've got 50 acres, 100 acres that's inside some municipal limits, um, they'd rather not have the ag exemption. They'd like to see a higher, higher tax rate on that. <coughs> yes, sir. So uh, is this going to give some protection to the landowner as far as keeping their ag exemption, or uh, is the cities still going to be able to revoke that? Or? No, I don't think it's going to uh, it's going to have an adverse impact. It says here that it would not affect the authority of the legislature to authorize the regulation practices. Um, the state agency or political subdivision uh, as necessary for public health, safety, and imminent danger, so they'll be able to do all those things. Also prevent danger to animal health, crop production. A state agency or political subdivision, political subdivisions, counties, districts, uh, municipalities, um, to preserve and serve the natural resource of the state under the Texas Constitutional. It would not affect the legislature's authority to authorize the use or acquisition of property for a public use, including the development of natural resources under the Constitution. So I don't think it does. You? Yeah, I think the big thing here is that this is going to give farmers and ranchers a leg to stand on if they have to go to court. Right. If a city or a county is coming in and trying to tell them what they can and can't do with their land, um, and it doesn't have to do with safety or, or things like of that nature, or you know, if it's not if it's not trying to take it for public use or eminent domain, that, that kind of thing. This is an explicit protection in the Constitution. We already have general protections of property rights in our Constitution, but this is an explicit protection of the agricultural activities that everyone's used to. And we'll give farmers and ranchers a leg to stand on the court. That's the main thing. I don't think it's going to affect uh, a lot of folks uh, in the short term. I don't think most people are going to see a real change uh, unless they're having a major problem in their particular area. So it uh, protects a person's right to engage in generally accepted farm, ranch, timber production, horticulture, or wildlife management practices on real property that a person owns or that's the protection we get. Uh, just a comment, somebody who grew up on a farm, not anything that protects a family-owned farm sounds good to me. Because yeah. that, that's going to keep your food prices way low. Yeah. All right. Let's move. Yes, ma'am. Is it protected against eminent domain? Uh, no. It has no impact on that. No, it won't affect eminent domain. No. On what? Eminent all right, Proposition 2. Proposition 2, FOI, for all the propositions, uh, 
you're going to be voting yes or no on the ballot, and that is support or oppose. So if you see voting yes, then that means that you support that amendment. And if you vote no, then you're opposing that amendment. So Proposition 2 is the constitutional amendment authorizing a local option exemption from ad valorem tax by a county or municipality all of all or part of the appraised value of the real property used to operate a child care facility. So ad valorem tax is property tax. And the Constitution requires that all properties be taxed equally. And so this is going to do a, create a carve-out that um, will allow the jurisdiction to consider lesser value of a property that's used to operate a child care facility. Um, and I'll give you a hint, this one is authored and sponsored by two Democrats. Uh, also, the uh, Texas Fiscal Responsibility opposed this uh, proposition, uh, this amendment. Pardon? Okay, I'll let him tell us why. Yes, so we are opposed to this amendment. We urge everyone to vote no on this amendment. We believe that this does have the potential to raise your, to raise your property taxes. Anytime you have a carve-out for a particular uh, business, particular interest group uh, from, property, from paying property taxes, it's going to inevitably, in almost all cases, raise the property taxes on everyone else who doesn't have that exemption. Because what happens is local governments typically, there might be a few, exe a few uh, exceptions, but typically they don't lower their spending. They don't lower their budgets to account for the lost revenue anytime they get one of these exemptions. So on the surface, it may sound good. We want to you know, help child care facilities. Um, it's going to inevitably, for almost, in almost every situation that it's implemented, it's going to end up raising property taxes on homeowners and other small businesses. So we're very much close to the How many, how many uh, daycare centers does the two legislators own? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not aware. <laughs> I guess my question would be, is what, how do they define a daycare center? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Does it have to have a placard on the outside, or is somebody that takes care of kids in there? I, I don't know exactly. It's probably a license. Um, you know, if you have a particular child care uh, license, then you would be eligible for this. And this isn't statewide. This is only giving counties and cities the ability to do it in their particular jurisdiction. So it's not statewide, uh, unlike a later proposition that we'll talk about that has to do with a different type of business. So this is a local option for counties and cities. So this proposition, like a lot of others, is a, is a two-step. It's not a dance. But it's a two-step in that it allows the legislature to do other things. And one of the things that this specifically does is it would allow the legislature to define the term child care facility and establish additional eligibility requirements to receive the property tax uh, exemption. So the state wouldn't be granting the exemption, and it would be done locally, but the state would then set the definition of what a child care facility would be. So you're, you're right. And, uh, some of these things, uh, and, I, and frankly, I don't know on this one, but a lot of these, the legislature has already passed the law, and it's waiting to see if you pass the constitutional amendment. Yes. 
In some cases, they haven't passed that law. They're waiting to see if the constitutional amendment passes, and then they will. So, um, and so keep that in mind, that there are two halves to this. And, and that's one problem I have, is that you think you have authorized a child care facility using the paradigm of what you consider a child care facility in this case. And then when they define it, it may be entirely different than what you think. I got a question. I actually have a comment. Our pro one of our problems is people will apply for something and get it. And then when they close their business, they will not refute that. And they will go on a couple of years until they're caught um, with their property tax exemption. And then there's a fine. Yeah, one of the things that also happens, and, and our speaker uh, talked a little towards that, is that um, the way that the property tax formulas work in Texas is that a jurisdiction can collect the same dollar value as the prior year. And so if things come off the taxes, it forces the remaining taxable properties to be increased um, so that you get the same amount. The intent was to the opposite, was that when you had inflation that it didn't drive your taxes up. But it does work the opposite direction if you have things taken off of the taxes. It lets the others go up to maintain the same revenue in the jurisdiction. Just another point out that the State Department of uh, Children Health Services regulates daycare, licenses them, and it is currently allowed to have daycare centers in people's homes. So know a little bit about appraisal law. And in Texas, the chief appraiser is in charge of the exemptions. So if the if a residential property is has a business run out of it, the chief appraiser can grant that exemption under this. So you could have a half million dollar house off the tax rules because it's a daycare. It's whatever property is used for the daycare. So yeah, if you're using your, your home as uh, the child care facility and, and uh, exemption granted, then you get uh, a partial or full exemption. And I just wanted to point out, another one of the cons is there's no requirement for that daycare owner to pass those savings on to their customers. So they could be getting the break thinking, oh, okay, this will help you know, young mothers or whatever to, you know, save on their daycare costs, but there's nothing that says that owner has to pass those savings along. All right. Well, a possible corollary to that is a lot of these uh, businesses get federal funds for certain grants and they're clearly favored toward one of the party, political parties. Thank you. Let's move to Proposition 3. The constitutional amendment prohibiting the imposition of an individual wealth or net worth tax, including a tax on the difference between the assets and liabilities of an individual or family. Uh, this uh, is uh, favored by the Texans for fiscal responsibility. And uh, I'll give you a little background. Texas does not currently impose a state tax on the wealth or net worth of an individual or family. However, because Section 1, Article 8 of the Texas Constitution requires
requires or authorizes under certain circumstances the taxation of both tangible and intangible property, a tax on an individual's or a family's wealth or net tax, net worth, such as a property tax on individual stock holdings or bank accounts, is not strictly prohibited by the Texas Constitution. And so this is intended to close a loophole. Yeah, so th this is this is similar to what y'all passed a year or two ago when we prohibited an income tax. So this is a this is closing a door on any future wealth or net worth tax, um, just like we closed the door on a future income tax. Uh, basically, the only way for them to, assuming you pass this proposition uh, and it becomes part of the Constitution, the only way for them to undo this and impose a wealth tax is to pass a new constitutional amendment. Stripping this out, so it's it's closing the door on a future wealth tax. All right. So just to be clear, this amendment prohibits the implementation of any new tax. Prohibits a wealth tax. Vote for it if you don't want to. So you want to vote yes for this. Yeah. <laughs> Never have lots of wealth to protect. So. <laughs> New daycare centers can really. Property tax relief. 
Uh, unfortunately, there are some claiming it's the largest property tax relief package in the history of the state. It's not true. It's the second largest, uh, but some relief is, is better than none. Uh, the main things that it does, I'll, I'll break it down for you. Uh, it's going to raise the standard homestead exemption from $40,000 to $100,000. It's going to apply about $7 billion in school maintenance and operation compression. So what the, what the state is doing is they're taking state dollars, still tax dollars, it's your dollars, but they're going to apply $7 billion to compress the school maintenance and operation rate, which is about half of your property tax. For most Texans, school MO is about half of the bill. And then um, they've got about $600 million in increases for franchise tax exemptions. And what else? Uh, Isn't there something for separate property? Yeah, so uh, they're also doing a pilot program for the next three years. Uh, they're calling them circuit breakers. They're essentially appraisal caps for non homestead property. So if you've got a small business that's worth under $5 million, they're going to say each year for the next three years, uh, your appraisal on that small business property can only increase by 20%. Similar how your homestead can only increase by 10% each, each year. Is that like second homes also, not just businesses? Yeah, I think as long as it's not your homestead property. Okay, and, and will you have to apply for that exemption? I don't know. Someone I want to point out here that this is, uh, since it's favored by Paul Bettencourt, and I know there, there are people that are familiar with him, with him from the radio, he owns one of the biggest tax agency firms in Harris County. And this law does nothing but, but increase his business because it, it just, listening to the, the reading of that is so complicated. What is created, only a tax agent will be able to figure out the tax. Then they just take the first, raise the first hundred thousand off the. It says temporary, temporary. So that means later it could be revoked because it's temporary. So it it, it raises the homestead exemption from forty thousand to one hundred thousand. Temporary. We we are um, we are concerned that most of that safety. We do think that people will see some savings this year and maybe next year. It's going to depend on where in the state you're at. It depends on how much your appraisal goes up, and it depends on how much your local government increases its budget and its, and its tax rates. So you may see some relief. Some people may see no relief. Uh, it really is going to depend on where in the state you're at. It's, it's certainly not going to be the kind of relief that we promise, but some relief is better than none. And it does have $7 billion of compression for the school MO rates. And we think that's a good thing. We, we would have liked to have seen all $12.7 billion applied to school MO compression because that's the only efficient way that we're going to abolish the school MO taxes completely. But this is just a temporary. I don't, I, I am not of the understanding that the homestead exemption is temporary. No. The, the circuit breakers for the non homestead properties, that is temporary. That's a three year pilot program. And the compression, of course, has to be funded every biennium. But my understanding is that the homestead exemption is is permanent unless they change the law. That's my understanding. That's my understanding as well. And the temporary portion is the limit on the maximum appraised value of the property um, on the growth. But there are, there are about uh, seven, no, five, five different elements to 
that this triggers to change. And one of those is changing that exemption, homestead exemption from the 40,000 to 100,000. And that's not temporary, that was just happened. The only temporary part of that I'd like to point out is your appraisal will continue to go up. So eventually, eventually, uh, because of your rising appraisals, the savings you'll see from the homestead exemption is going to slowly evaporate. That's why we don't favor homestead exemptions. We favor compression. Compression is, is compressing the rate. That's much more permanent than just simply getting a homestead exemption. I mean, eventually your property is going to increase probably $60,000 worth, and you're going to be paying, you're going to be right back to where you were right now. So, But it, you probably will see some relief if you have to pay more you. I'd like to point out that this uh, amendment has some much broader implications. If property taxes are generally reduced, then the legislature will probably increase sales taxes. Property taxes are progressive. I personally am in favor of property taxes. I can afford to pay them. I am glad to pay them. Uh, but uh, if, if the uh, sales taxes increase, that's ex extremely regressive and very hard on low-income people. So I'm opposed to it. My question is that how, to, um, how do you compress the amount? Is that the, the, the state uh, paying a portion of it? How, how is that compressed? Right, so they're, they're going to be applying $7 billion to compress the MNO rate, and that's across the state. It's, it's funky math, I can't exactly do it in my head, but they're taking that money and they're, they're pushing. So if, the, if your school MNO rate is $1.50, right, they're going to take that $7 billion, apply it to all the schools and help push down to where the schools still receive the same amount of money. Schools aren't losing any money at all. But and maybe instead of the rates that they're gonna to apply to you being $1.50, maybe it'll only be $1.40 or $1.30 per $100 evaluation. And the state fill, backs in and, 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 fills, and fills in the difference with state dollars. Sure, I mean, yeah, it's, there's no, there's no like surplus account that they're pulling it from, but yeah, it's the state dollars that collected from the sales taxes that, that you paid over the last two years. How does that work? Is that a one-time backfill, or is that going to be a, you know? So, so they would have continued, they would have to continue to fund it each, each buying. That's correct. I'm going to go a two-part deal here. Uh, back in 21, the legislature increased the. Exemption from 25 to 40, and if you were already frozen on your school taxes, you didn't pick that up. But this new, you're going to get the 60 plus the 15 are going back. And is that correct? That's what I understand. That's that's my understanding. Yeah. So you're going to increase your exemption to about 75,000, and if you're already frozen on your school taxes, they are going to go back and give you that uh, reduction. If you're frozen at 4,000, they're going to lower it by. Right, that's, that's my understanding. Right. And then also, is my understanding that the taxing districts are supposed to send out a provisional tax bill stating if here's your tax, it didn't pass, but if it doesn't, here's what your bill I believe they're supposed to. I know at least some have. I've seen pictures of them where they said you know, this is your bill because of the, what the legislature right. passed, but you will receive a different one if the proposition fails. Um, so yes, I But they're not all abiding by that because I called Beta County and they're not going to send your bill out till mid-November after the election. 
I just got my tax bill from Gonzales County. There was no nothing in there saying that this passes at this amount. So yeah, it's I, like I the appraisal districts are done. It's from it's from county to county. Yeah. Uh, now Harris County is saying this includes the exemption, but it's not saying what it would be if it didn't include it. So you can have a call to figure out what that would be. So um, it's kind of dense. Seems like a convoluted crop to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to proposition number five. Constitutional amendment relating to the Texas University Fund, which provides funding to certain institutions of higher education to achieve national prominence as major research universities and drive the state economy. And so this is a rename to a current fund that they have, and it's to support emerging research universities in Texas and make them eligible to receive money from the Permanent University Fund, um, the Texas University Fund, and exempt money in the fund and tax revenue appropriated from the fund from the constitutional state spending cap. So it's gonna lift that cap. The proposed amendment also provides for a dedicated source of revenue for the Texas University Fund from the interest income, dividends, and investment earnings attributable to the state's economic stabilization fund, which we all know is the rainy day fund, not to exceed $100 million per, per state fiscal year. Um, and it's adjusted for inflation up to 2% per state fiscal year after 2024. Uh, this, um, this amendment is uh, opposed by the Texas for Fiscal Responsibility, and I'll let them speak to that. Sure. Um, I think it's kind of laughable that they put in there that universe, these big universities drive the state economy because uh, it's, it's, it's farmers and ranchers and blue-collar workers who drive the state economy, so I thought that was a little a little funny. Um, so this, this amendment does two things. One, it renames a fund. I forget what the current name is, but it's renaming it to the Texas University Fund. That doesn't really matter, it's, it's just a name. The main thing that it's doing is going to spend about $650 million over the next four years giving money to these big leftist universities. Mm -hmm. um, they already received billions of dollars of taxpayer support every single year. And so not only are they now going to receive a new permanent source of revenue uh, that, they shouldn't, that they shouldn't be getting, it's also a misuse of the rainy fund, in our opinion. They're now going to be taking the interest and dividends and so forth from that, that's accrued from the rainy day fund uh, and give it to these big universities every single year going forward. Uh, we believe that's a misuse of the rainy day fund. The rainy day fund is there in case we have a major crisis, an economic collapse, so forth. Um, this money shouldn't be going to these big universities like UT and AM and Texas State. Um, that money needs to either stay in the rainy day fund or needs to be given back to to the taxpayers and form of property tax relief. So, and like I said, $650 million just over the next four years from general revenue and from the land fund. So we're very much opposed to it. Is this sponsored by Democrat? This is sponsored by Greg Bonin and Joan Huffman, both Republicans. And, and the name change uh, just wraps it in, in the Texas flag, because it had been the, the National Research University Fund, and this changes it to the 
Texas University Fund, which I think really just did us. So we're going to put a lot more of our own money in it <laughs> instead of money that's coming from federal grants. I mean, you made a general statement that they were Republicans. Usually, I look beyond Republican or Democrat. I look as to, I look at what district they're serving, and usually from that is where I can tell who's applying the pressure. Not so much Republican, but the districts. And I agree, and that's why I read the names instead of just saying it was two Republicans. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that everyone uh, is intimately familiar with where District 24 and District 17 are at. Senate 17. where or what kind of water projects. I think that's left up to whatever agency 
is, is left to administer the fund. Um, we're neutral on this. We understand that water is an extremely important resource for folks. Um, but anytime you create one of these funds, you spend taxpayer money, you're, you're expanding government. Uh, and a billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, so we, uh, we say just vote your heart, vote your conscience on this one. Uh, we, we can kind of see arguments from both sides. So that's what we're How do you get your hands on funds? Is it for government agencies? Is it for private developers? How do, how do you access the funds? That's flexible. <laughs> Are you using any of this, Deborah, for your McMansion? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this appears to all, all be administered by the Texas Water Development Board. Um, and the Water Development Board currently administers funds to do this, um, and they do low interest loans and things for water, wastewater, um, to utility districts, that are, and, which includes municipalities uh, that are all taxing districts. I don't know of any private uh, I'm not sure if they could go to private entities. Um, I'm not really sure how many private entities out there are doing these kinds of project, projects. Probably mostly at the public part, the private partnerships with these taxing entities like MUDs and so forth. I you know years ago in, in the Shelby area, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, track runoff water put, put in a pond or maybe dams. Is that something? Because I don't think there are no new water sources other than properly managing what you have. But it wouldn't be something like that. that. That sounds productive. So I know there's talk to do water desalinization projects. I don't know if there's any currently underway. I know they're also just talking about building new reservoirs. There's a, there's a project that I know the local farmers and rangers are trying to stop up in northeast Texas. I forget the name of it. Um, but you know the big reservoirs that they you know that they fill up that these these man-made lakes um, could be that kind of thing too. I'll need the mic. The uh, Texas Water Development Board already does low interest loans. I believe the city of Fayetteville recently applied or is working on a grant. I mean they routinely do this and they're very uh, it's, it's very from a municipality standpoint, it's easy to access these funds. I don't understand why. Yeah, there, this, yeah, the explanation here, the analysis is they want to pump $1 billion more into the funds that are available for use by the Texas Water Development Board. So it's just an increase of money in the process that's already there.
And so this amendment would lift that cap. So they want to pump a billion dollars into that fund. And right now, even with the rest of this here, one thing that has to happen is they have to lift that cap or they couldn't appropriate the billion dollars under the other provision of the Constitution. And there are two or three different amendments that are on this ballot that do that, lift the cap. Um, the one we talked about with property tax also lifts the cap because they're going to contribute more money, state money, back to the school districts to make up for some of that loss and to achieve the compression. And so that cap has to be lifted to do that. Um, and so that's. So this is for expansion of infrastructure as opposed to the actual procurement of water. So the, the funds that are done through the Water Development Board are to drill wells, put in pipelines, um, to do the infrastructure, not for the purchase of water, which is an ongoing, or selling. Yeah, it's not a commodity. Individual sponsoring. Yeah, was uh, Charles Perry, Republican, uh, Senate District 28, and Democrat Tracy O'Kane from House District 80. I had a question. Texas Constitution requires that we pass a balanced budget every Biden. So removing a cap and creating these funds Places that money outside of the budget. Right. So, so we have the uh, we have the, the spending cap. It's not supposed to grow more than population plus in, inflation each year. Basically, what they can break the cap with a simple majority vote in the legislature. Basically, what's going on is they were too scared to take that vote, and so they're asking you. That <laughs> <laughs> they're asking the, the people of Texas to vote yeah. on whether or not we want to spend more than population plus in, inflation. So, which is plenty. I'm sorry? That's a lot of increase in the last two years. Oh, oh, I could talk about how much we've been. It's just this last, just this last biennium, we increased, we had the largest spending increase in the history of the state of Texas. That's a whole different topic. But, <laughs> but so sometimes, sometimes we would argue it's good, right? So with Proposition 4, property tax relief, we would say vote for that. Some of it is better than none. Break the spending cap. Those things, maybe not. So it kind of depends on the issue. But yes, they're, they're asking you to break the spending cap instead of themselves. They, they didn't want to take the vote. Would this suggest individual putting in a well, like the county has a limit on, I think it's two acres, where you can put in a well? No, I don't think it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's certain, not on private property, private wells. This is simply providing. One billion dollars for counties, cities, things of that nature to to expand or improve water infrastructure. That's really all it is. So it won't impact your individual well putting in a well with limitations that your groundwater district uh, regulates. My question is very simple. I don't even like what kind of inflation? I mean, how do you find inflation? Talking about the, the, the um, spending growth, yeah. the spending cap. You mentioned the word inflation. 
Right. So, so the state is not supposed to increase their spending any more than popul than the rate is, any more than the rate of population plus inflation. So, whatever the inflation has been over the last two years, that's that's the number. And I don't I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but that's what's used to calculate that. So, the rate of population growth. So, if you had you know a million people in the state plus the rate of inflation. Calculation on how, how much they can increase the spending versus the previous budget. So that doesn't answer the question of inflation. Is that CPI? What producer price index? What is that inflation? Yeah, I think it's CPI, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head. And that's the federal government. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Proposition seven. Constitutional amendment providing for the creation of the Texas Energy Fund to support the construction, maintenance, modernization, and operation of electric generating facilities. Uh, this is opposed uh, by the Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. Um, the author is uh, Senator uh, Charles Schroeder from District 5, and the House sponsors Todd Hunter from District 32, both Republicans, and uh, I'm personally not a fan of the deregulation and Burkott uh, and, and all of the things that they did there. I think it's been a failure personally. There's my two cents worth. And uh, we'll hear the, the official opposition from the uh, Texas Republicans. So, so we're actually in support of this proposition. Um, kind of gritting our teeth. Um, it's one of those things where electricity, electricity, you have to have electricity for literally everything we do nowadays. You can't pump water, you can't, uh, you can't pump gas from the gas station without electricity. Um, it does create a new fund, it does spend taxpayer dollars, so we're kind of gritting our teeth, but we do, we do support this amendment. Um, we, see the, we see the arguments against it. Electricity is such a valuable resource. We all experienced the winter storm that happened in 2021. We all know because of the solar panels and everything else that they've installed, the, the struggles we've had over the last few years, especially during the summers and winters. Um, so this will, we, we think, kind of be a, a necessary uh, step to help support, uh, help secure our electricity. So that's our position. All right, so this uh, amendment, if passed, would provide initial funding of $5 billion um, to provide loans and grants from the fund. So, Ken, is this just for, like, can they use it for renewables is what I I don't think they can. I believe this is mainly to try and update and reinforce winterize uh, uh, natural gas plants, mostly. Uh, that's where the main source of our energy comes from. That's my understanding. It's not specific. I, I don't believe that renewables fall under the definition. I could be mistaken about that, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's natural gas and coal. Basically updating them to, to newer technology. Can't afford to upgrade our electrical infrastructure. Then they have to go to the government. 
comments? So, so y'all support it, right? So we read a tease, yes, we do support it. <laughs> We, we do, yeah, we do support Proposition 7. So you do support it. So this is an error. Yeah, Linda's pointed out that they, the sheet from Texas for Public Responsibility incorrectly shows they oppose this uh, proposition. All right, we are halfway through. Is it dinner time? <laughs> Proposition 8, the Constitutional Amendment creating the Broadband Infrastructure Fund to expand high-speed broadband access and assist in financing of connectivity projects. Um, this again is uh, authored and sponsored by Republicans, uh, Trent Ashby in uh, House District 9 and Joan Huffman in Senate District 17. Um, this uh, creates well, they created a broadband infrastructure fund. This expands the access and adoption of services um, that was going to expire now a 10-year um, extension. Legislature has appropriated $1.5 billion to the proposed fund contingent on your approval of the amendment. And it is opposed. Yes, we do oppose this one. Um, the legislature already spent billions of dollars in the previous session on trying to expand broadband access, um, whether that be rural or inner city. Um, this creates this new fund, a broadband infrastructure fund, $1.5 billion next year on that. We are opposed to it. Um, unlike uh, some other things, like you could make the argument for water and electricity, internet can be pretty easily, we believe, uh, left to the free market. Um, I think broadband itself is something that is quickly going to become uh, obsolete with things like Starlink from Elon Musk, where they're putting the satellites in space, providing high-speed internet for that literally anywhere in the world, whether that's Alaska or you know, the middle of the desert. So we think leaving this up to the free market is the appropriate response, and we, we strongly oppose this amendment. I agree. I agree. Any questions? All right, down the slide, proposition number nine, the constitutional amendment authorizing the 88th legislature to provide a cost of living adjustment to certain annuitants of the teacher retirement system of Texas. Uh, Texans for fiscal responsibility show neutral. Um, this is another Greg Bonin and Joan Huffman uh, proposal. And this is a temporary amendment to the constitution provide the cost of living adjustment and to appropriate state money to pay for the adjustment. The appropriated money is $3.355 billion to fund this contingent on your approval. Well, what's the temporary? Uh, temporary in that it's one time, one legislature. Is it one year or two years? Well, it's the 88th legislature, so I would say that's two years. It'll be the biennium. Yes. So is that something, so they give them a raise this time, but then as we go down next time? So they would have to continue to fund it, right? So this is a cost of living adjustment. I don't think they've had a cost of living adjustment since the 2000s. I'm totally wrong on that. It's just what's in the back of my head. 
We all know inflation's been crazy the last few years, cost of living going up. We're neutral on this, they'll spend a lot of taxpayer money, and we also understand they haven't had a cost of living adjustment in a long time, and we've all experienced the, the problems of inflation, so we're, we're neutral on this one. Does this just cover current uh, retirees or any future I believe it's current to anyone who retires during the next buying year. And of course, if they continue to fund this, then it would be any future retirees. I'm curious about the term certain and yes. because uh, not everyone in the teacher retirement system is a teacher. And I mean, uh, didn't you say someone would be, because they're part of the Texas a system, Texas a system? The forest Yeah, the forest service also includes that. I mean, what do they mean by certain and I mean, I mean, not just yeah. teachers is what, what I'm understanding because I used to be a secretary at Texas A&M and I was part of the retirement system. And so anyway, what do they mean by certain annuities? I'm afraid I have no definition. I believe it's, it's just teachers, but I think you, you actually, that reminds me, I think maybe this may not apply to uh, people who retired this year. It may just be those who are already retired. I, I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking what I just said, so. It may actually be uh, people that have been retired possibly more than three years, is it? it yeah, it may, that may actually be what it is, and I'm rethinking right. what I just said, so. Right. I had read somewhere that uh, the main focus was on teachers that had retired 2006 and prior was, we're going to get quite a large cost of living, yes. and then those from 2006 forward, we're going to get a slight adjustment, but not as large as the ones prior to 2006. Correct. I would like to make a comment. I take a broad view of this, like I do about most things. The future of the United States depends on effective education, and that means we need to expand our teacher population, and offering this will help that. No, for retired this is only for those that are already retired. Right. Others are going to retire as they go along. There are, I'm a retired uh, teacher from Cyber, but there are a lot of uh, teachers that don't even understand how retirement works. I'm shocked. I have teachers that are planning on retiring soon, and they call me to help me you know, calculate their retirement for them. But anyway, what I want to point out is teachers' uh, salaries in Texas have been low, have remained low for a long time. It's just been in recent years that they've been increased. All of that to say, the TRS multiplier of 2.3 has not changed since, I believe it was 2001 or two. So it's been 20 years. The only way that a teacher can enhance their retirement now is through salary increase. It won't happen through the TRS multiplier. I know many teachers that are retired that live uh, at the poverty level. I will tell you that now. It's a critical problem. Uh, we haven't kept up with teacher salaries in Texas, haven't paid attention to it. Um, and quite frankly, um, the Republican Party is partially responsible for that. I will just lay it at the feet of the Republican Party. Um, I'm fortunate I don't have to rely on 
TRS, you know, for my living. And also another thing I want to point out is people that came out of the private sector and started teaching like myself um, do not receive all of the social security that they've earned from those previous years. So that is something that um, uh, some of our legislators might carry that, but I don't even know if that ever gets out of committee, does it? I don't think that can be changed. Um, okay. Uh, so my, my mother's in that boat. She she's a public school teacher, but yes. she she spent time working outside of the system, out of the public school system, and she will not get social security. So that's that, that is correct. Yeah. So so te retired teachers definitely rely on on the TRS system. I mean, I know retired teachers in their seventies that are still having to work um, any job that they can to make ends meet, and these are the people that have educated our children and in a lot of cases raised our children and that's another thing that teachers have to do today and they have to be more than educators in many cases i was a parent to students who needed it so anyway i, I just want to say that personally i support this proposition Austin for a while and um, 
Everybody knew when they retired how much they were going to make per month. And I just suppose that we have to pay more. I think the teachers, the retired teachers, should work with the Texas retirement system, teachers' retirement system. Because from my understanding, they've got a lot of money. I want to answer Cindy's question. Why are teachers' salaries so much lower than administrators? Because teachers are dedicated. The benefit they receive is not in the money. It's the satisfaction they receive, and we all benefit from it. Now, collective bargaining, uh, union states, all states have teachers' unions, but there's a difference. Texas is not a collective bargaining teachers' union state. You understand what that means, everybody? Okay. So that is why our salary is one of the main reasons. You might disagree with me, but that's one of the main reasons why teachers' salaries have remained low, because we don't hold up the government like California does and all uh, every time that we want to raise. Okay? Uh, I don't like collective bargaining from that standpoint. I think it negatively has a negative impact on education. Uh, and I'm glad that we're not a collective bargaining teacher state. But bear that in mind, our teachers were back at work six months after COVID got underway. California, two years. Those kids missed out on two years of education in a lot of schools. So I will always stand up for teachers, and this is a critical problem because there are too many teachers that are living in poverty that have been retired for several years now. Um, Houston Fire Department with Ken, they do a lot more with COLA on an annual basis for their retirees to equalize retirement benefits for retired firefighters. Even they do that. The police departments do that. She just answered my, my question, I think. And my wife's a top retired teacher who was forced to pay union dues and, and all that. And uh, I was wondering, isn't this part of a union contract? But I guess it's not. No, Retired teachers are very dependent on the state legislature. So we, we would we would favor actually the retired teachers, whatever retirement system that they have, getting away from being dependent on the state legislature so frankly these politicians can't use them as political pawns and and um, where they're having to come and beg kind of, kind of similar to the way we have to come and beg property tax relief every two years um get, get them away from that but, but exactly what that looks like i, I couldn't tell you so. so so we're the problem no 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 we're not we're the problem, the problem. <laughs> why, why the teachers are underpaid the, the, the politicians are also the problem
we will never uh, receive our spouse's Social Security or our Social Security, um, which includes cost of living and all that stuff. We will never receive cost of living. Um, so yes, I'm one of those poor teachers that will have to work doing something for us to speaking, 
authorized because you were told the district was only going to charge uh, 15 cents uh, tax. And they were just going to do these certain things. And we go down the road, and the constitutional amendment comes along, and your 15 or 20 cent tax jumps up to 50 cents. And we all know someday down the road it's going to be 75 cents. But that's my two cents. Um, but you get to vote on El Paso whether or not El Paso is going to allow uh, conservation reclamation districts to increase property taxes for parks and recreation. So I hope you vote wisely. I just want to say that Barbara and I attended the TFRW convention last week, and in one of the workshops, there was a group of ladies from El Paso, and they had just finished defeating a uh, certificate of obligation by that the city of El Paso wanted to pass uh, to circumvent the bond approval process. And they, all of those ladies, were definitely opposed to this. So if El Paso ladies are opposed to it, I don't think we should be for it. <laughs> We've heard from the young mothers of El Paso. Yes. All right, proposition number 12, the Constitution Amendment providing for the abolition of the office of county treasurer in Galveston County. Is that still uh, Johnson? I don't know who that person was. Anyhow, uh, again, here in Fayette County, to vote on whether or not they're going to abolish the office of county treasurer in Galveston, Texas. Um, the Texans for Fiscal Responsibility favor this, and so we'll let them speak to it in great detail. So um, this is one of those funny things when the whole state gets to vote on one little issue in one little county. Um, here's about a dozen other uh, counties that have abolished their uh, treasurer position. Uh, it is an elected position. Um, I've spoken to the gentleman who currently holds the treasurer position. He's a, he's a young man who ran on the platform of abolishing his own position. And that's what he was elected on. He, he, he ran saying, if you elect me, I will work to abolish the, my position as county treasurer. Uh, so people voted him in. Uh, people in Galveston County apparently don't want the county treasurer anymore. I believe it'll save them a little bit of money each year. Um, and my understanding is that the He's basically just a rubber stamp. All of the actual duties are, are already, uh, based on what he said to me, all the other duties are already handled by other people in, in the county government. So uh, we're always happy to see one more government bureaucrat go away. Uh, and, and, you know, if it saves Galveston County a little bit of money, then pay good for them. So we're, we're, we're in support of it. Why does it have to be a constitutional amendment? Because of the way our constitution works, uh, I, I guess the constitution requires these counties to have treasurers, and so we're providing an exemption for them in the constitution. There's, like I said, there's about 12 or so other counties that have already done this. So did we do a constitutional yeah, amendment? It would have been the exact same thing. In past uh, election years, you would have voted to eliminate the county treasurer in Bashaw County or something, right? So it would have been the same thing. These counties, these county governments, city governments, they only exist because the, because the state of Texas has created them and allows them to exist. And so, it, it, um, the counties aren't uh, sovereign in, in a sense, right? They're, they're the creations of the, of the whole people of Texas. So that's why 
they have to go to everyone in order to change their local and I did go on the Fayette County website, and Fayette County doesn't have a county treasurer. So, an auditor. But there's, that's a higher position. We do not have an elected county treasurer. All right. Moving right along. Proposition number 13. Constitutional amendment to increase the mandatory age of retirement for state justices and judges. So this takes the mandatory retirement age for those judges from 75 to 79. And uh, I guess the theory here is we're all living longer and living healthier and we're running out of judges. So I wanna extend that age. Uh, the Texas for Fiscal Responsibility have a position of opposing this and I'll let them explain. So, um, yeah, we see the argument from, you know, longer lifespans, people are living longer. Uh, but everyone knows who Joe Biden is. Yeah. <laughs> He's in his late 70s. And Joe doesn't know who he is. But uh, Joe, we've seen the cognitive decline in, in uh, Joe Biden. And um, you know there are, there are certainly people who are of that age who can certainly uh, perform their duties competently. The concern here is that when you're dealing with issues of justice, when you're dealing with issues potentially of sending someone to prison for the rest of the rest of their life, um, we we have hesitation of allowing you know, uh, judges uh, to continue to work in those situations as they as they get older. And I think Joe Biden is a perfect example of the, the type of person you don't want deciding uh, who goes to jail or what, especially when we're talking about innocent people. So. I have a question, and I may be off base here, but aren't the uh, aren't the legislators legislators uh, retirement based on the district judges' retirement? So if they allow them to work longer, that will increase their retirement benefits, which will then increase the legislature. You're right on point. So yeah, uh, state house and uh, members, I think senators as well, but I know house members for sure. Their salary or their retirement uh, is based off of judges' retirement. So they try to, and I believe they fail to provide a cost of living adjust adjustment to judges. That would have had the effect of providing themselves a cost of living adjustment. I believe it was killed this this session, thankfully. Uh, but um, I don't know exactly how the labor retirement age would fit in. It may have that effect that you say. Our main concern is basically miscarrying justice in the courtroom, the potential for that. We're not saying it would happen. We're not against you know, old folks, right? But uh, the, the, uh, the potential for that becomes greater as you age, and so that's why we're opposed to it. You know, uh, I worked in the criminal justice uh, for a long time, and um, I think it makes a good case uh, we ought to talk about term limits. Uh, there's a lot of people who sat on the bench for decades and decades, and they barely even really run their own courtroom. It's their clerks and their staff that are, that are running the, the court. And uh, it's always disheartening to, to be before one of those judges where they do not make a decision in the open court. They defer that that they're gonna give you their opinion later and you know that it's not really gonna be their opinion. They're gonna go back and somebody else is gonna tell them. So I, you know, I wouldn't 
you, you wouldn't let someone between 75 and 79 fly your, your air, airplane uh, full of people. And, uh, I don't know that I would want to go before one uh, if my life depended on it. So there's my two cents as well. Any questions? All right, we'll move to proposition number 14. Unless you want to take a break, because this is the last one, and then this one will be over. Okay, I'm not hearing it. Try for a break. The constitutional amendment providing for the creation of the Centennial Parks Conservation Fund to be used for the creation and improvement of state parks. So, Centennial is the 100th anniversary of Texas um, state parks, and uh, so they're looking to. But uh, you know, a billion dollars seems to be the big round number uh, of appropriations in this cycle. So this would uh, take a billion dollars and appropriate it uh, and dedicate it to uh, state parks and wildlife for Centennial Park Conservation Fund. And it is opposed by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. And it is authored by Senator Tan Parker, Republican from District 12, and uh, Representative Armando Wall, a Democrat from District 1. Is this another carve-out? So it's not a carve-out, but it is a, it is a new fund uh, where they're going to take a billion dollars, of, a billion tax dollars, and give it to Texas Parks and Wildlife to either create new or maintain or Currently existing state parks. Is um, that above the normal maintenance? Yes, this would be a, a whole brand new billion dollars that they haven't had before. Um, we understand, you know, conserving our natural resources, all that kind of stuff. We get those arguments, but there are, there are other ways to do that without spending a billion of your tax dollars on it. Um, uh, so we're, we're very much opposed to this, and uh, I think we should send that money back to the legislature and tell them to give it to us in proper time. There, there are a number of amendments here that are either carving out or adding money. What happens if they are not passed? Does that money, do we lower the spending or do they just find a new way to spend So my understanding is the money's kind of going to sit there in the ether and uh, nothing really will happen to it. I will say though, if you vote no on all of the propositions that TFR recommends a no on, you would be, you would be saving $3.3 billion. And I think that would actually send a strong signal to the legislature and say, we don't want you spending this money on your pet projects or on your corporate welfare. You should give it back to us, the taxpayers, because you already had a $33 billion surplus this last session. And they're only providing $12.7 billion of that back in property tax bill. The rest of it, they're spending. They're spending almost $18 billion worth in corporate welfare. And that's a whole other conversation. But I think uh, we vote now on the ones uh, we recommend no one throw some of the others uh, that spend money as well. If you decide to vote against them, that money will be sent back to the legislature and they will have the opportunity to spend it on other things or send it back to us in the form of tax relief. So several of these uh, legislation already passed and they already appropriated the money, but they can't spend it. And, and those bills, it says where it's appropriated from. This one comes from, it's the General Appropriation Act. So it is the general fund of the state, and so if this does not pass, then they can't do the expenditure. 
stays in that fund. So they all aren't in the same pots of money, but they go back uh, and they got to spend it. I think we should approve this only if they agree to open the closed roadside parks in Fayette County. <laughs> I think that the Parks and Recreation Department needs to be revamped. Having recently retired and tried to make reservations at many parks all across Texas, they're always marked as full. And you go there and you might get in and there's two or three RVs there and the rest are open. And what they've done is they allow people to make these reservations online and then the people don't show up because the park fees are very, very low. And they get their money back if they don't show up. So they either should keep the money for the reservation that was not used or have some type of prorate on that. But I've been all over the state for the past year and all of the parks work the same way. And they always say there are no reservations there, but there's nobody at those parks. David. Wow. My only comment about this, the fact that they, it gives the state right to start purchasing more land, right? So it doesn't give them the right to purchase more land, they can already do that. It would just give them more money to be able to do that. Um, so they could, it, it would probably be challenging for it, but they could already own a domain property for parks. This would, this would give, provide them more funds in order to make that more successful and, and potentially do that. I mean, uh, there are plenty of other ways for them to acquire parks. Uh, I know plenty of examples throughout the state where folks have retired or passed away and, and people donate their property to the state or state parks. Um, you, can, you know, they can raise funds uh, for, through donations, park fees, that kind of thing. This is an appropriate use of the dollars. The only thing that, the red flag that I saw when I was reading this was that, I don't know, it's a 3020 agenda or the 3030 agenda where they, um, somebody wants to, you know, government to buy land to force people out of the country into cities. And I just, I, it makes me nervous for any vehicle to give the government the authority to do that, so. I vote no. <laughs> So I just want to chime in because since the last eight years, David and I have visited 67 state parks, I believe, in Texas. We made a career out of it. And one thing that I want people to be aware of is sometimes when you visit a state park and you see the water and you see the space and you see, yes, Yes, the reservation system, it was revamped about a year ago, doesn't feel like it, and there are still issues. But when you see the space, most of us make an assumption that that space that takes up, that makes that state park is owned by the state, but it's not necessarily. And some of them, it's been in the news lately, they lease that land, or that land was given to them on a certain time frame. And then when that land is reverted, it's a developer that buys it. And it's a developer that's going to use it because the state 
doesn't have the money allocated to just go buy 100 acres with a reservoir. And, and so we will find, I'm afraid as we go forward, unexpectedly seeing our state parks kind of fall apart and they're, they're all, and, and diminish in size. They're also subject to the same flooding and deterioration that anybody who has an old house knows about. So the maintenance of the wonderful CCC buildings that were built by those young men in the 20s and 30s that are historical gems in many of our state parks. Bastrop is so easy to get to to go see. Those things require a great deal of maintenance, just like your own house in the country does. And if they don't have the funds, those things again will fall by the wayside. And, and they really are a treasure, especially in a state that, that values our open spaces. So, uh, oh, apparently my time is up. I thought maybe because I was in charge of that, I could talk longer. Any other comments? Anybody interested in adding a 15th proposition? <laughs> We're going to turn this back over to Deborah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I want to thank David and Andrew especially. Great job. So glad y'all. Okay, that is it. I hope y'all feel a little more comfortable um, in your knowledge of the amendments and talk to other people. Again, it's such a shame that we have 20% of the voters coming out and making decisions that are going to affect all of us. So let's not let that happen. Let's talk to our friends and our neighbors and encourage people to get out and vote in this election. So having said that, meeting is adjourned.